0: You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Hi, guys. I am Jen Fisher. I'm the associate pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. And uh, this morning, we are starting off our new teaching series, as Leanne and Katie both said, by talking about drugs, more specifically about addiction. There is this essential mystery to addiction, and I want to acknowledge, I realize, that there are people in this room who inevitably struggle with addiction. Some conscious, some not, some publicly, some quietly and private. And beyond that, I would guess that many more of us have loved, befriended, or worked with someone who struggles or struggled with an addiction. And so I want to start off this morning by kind of evening the playing field a little bit and helping us recognize how much this affects uh, so many of us, all of us, even. So if you struggle with an addiction, or if you know someone, or have a friend who's known or loved someone with a serious addiction to drugs, alcohol, or another substance or behavior, I just want to ask you to raise your hand. No one will know if it's you or if it's someone you knew 10 years ago in college. I'm raising my hand as well. And If you look around, you can see that this is over half the room, right? So put your hands down. Whether you guys raised your hand or not, I just want you to consider if you've ever said yes to an extra shift at work, or an extra responsibility in your personal life when you knew that it was too much to take on. I want you to consider how many minutes pass each morning before you pick up your smartphone and start scrolling through social media. I want you to consider what happens to your body when you go without caffeine for a day or two. And I want you to think about how hard it is to say no to that free drink or that second portion when you know you've already had too much. My point is, that we all struggle with addiction or compulsion in one form or another, at one time or another. And so today, I want us to step into what I realize is a sensitive and somewhat difficult conversation for us to have communally. Um, but I want to ask us to, to do it with whatever understanding we have of drugs and addiction right now. Maybe it's just from what you learned in school or what you see on TV, that drugs are bad. Or maybe it's um, because you have struggled with an addiction or have a family member who struggled your entire life Wherever you are in this understanding, I want to ask you to extend grace today. Grace to me, grace to yourself, grace to each other, as we walk into these kind of murky waters of conversations that the church doesn't often have altogether. And so, as I was saying, there is an essential mystery to addiction. You know, what is it that causes some of us to get fixated on a behavior or a substance until we can't have enough, while others have one or two cigarettes at a party and don't think twice about it. How do we help those people who we've lost to the black hole of addiction, especially when they are people that we love and whom we are deeply affected by? First, I want to start off by defining the words addiction and compulsion. And if you come, um, which I hope you all will, to our Faith, Culture, and Questions Night with Science Mike on September 10th, he's going to do a lot more on the science and, and biology of addiction. But for our purposes today, I want to clarify that compulsion is something that you do over and over thoughtlessly, sometimes against your will, whereas addiction typically has an escalation to the cycle. So you need to get more and more and more of it until you can satisfy your craving or until you've met your, your fix, right? And drug addiction is an example of that. So I realize that some of the things that I mentioned earlier, like, you know, scrolling through your, your iPhone might be um, something that's more of a compulsion. And I realize that there are different camps of thought about what falls into these two categories, things like gambling or porn or whatever. But for our purposes this morning, I think we can all agree that most of us are tempted to reach for something that can have destructive power over us. From work, to food, to sex, to drinking, these are things that we could use and abuse, especially as New Yorkers in this culture that we live in, to try and take the edge off the difficulty of life. And so for us today, we're just going to refer to both of these things, compulsion and addiction, as um, cycles that produce undesired behavior for yourself, or undesired behavior for what maybe God wants for you, or for your time, or for your body, or for others around you. And I think the idea that most of us have about addiction is that it's a disease, right? That's what we've we've learned and what we know as as a society, that it's a disease that chemically hooks your brain and takes a lot of effort to unhook and rewire, but can be done through detox. So there was actually a series of experiments that helped to inform this this thought that addiction is a disease. And these experiments happened in the beginning of the 20th century with rats. There's actually some cartoon drawings I found on the internet of um, of these experiments. But so so uh, they took these rats and they put them in cages with two water bottles: one that was just water, and one that was water laced with something like cocaine or heroin. And every time, the rat would get a a taste of the drugged water and go back to it over and over and over again until it overdosed and killed itself. But then in the 1970s, there was a man named Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology in Vancouver, who noticed something odd about these experiments. He thought, you know, they put the rat into a cage all alone. What if, instead, you put the rat into a cage with colorful balls and, and tubes to run around in and um, you know other rat friends to have sex with? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was gonna be a laugh. First service, nothing. So. <laughs> Don't worry, the cartoons are Um, (laughs) G-rated. So, so what do you think happened when they put these rats into Rat Park, as they called it? Uh, Well, they tried the drugged water and they mostly shunned it. They were able to turn away from from the drug. None of them died of an overdose, none of them drank it compulsively. The unhappy and alone rats got addicted and died almost 100% of the time, while the rats that were in Rat Park had resilience, they had happy, connected lives and they were able to resist the, the drugged water and didn't die of an overdose 0% of the time. So unfortunately at this time in our American history, in the 1970s, there was a human version of this experiment going on that was called the Vietnam War. During the war, some 20% of our scared and miserable soldiers were using loads of heroin while fighting the war, and people feared that there were tons of junkies that were going to come back and, you know, and, and be a part of our society again. But guess what happened when they returned from the war? There's one study that says some 95% came home and stopped. Very few needed rehab. They went from this terrifying cage to a pleasant one and were able to, didn't want the drug anymore. In fact, I've read a range of statistics saying anywhere from one-third to two-thirds of people who have addictions to alcohol or other substances uh, recover without treatment. So, you know, experiments and experiences like these, they raise some challenging questions. Maybe addiction isn't caused by moral failure and too much partying. Maybe it's not a disease that simply chemically hijacks your brain without control. Maybe it's about adaptation and resiliency Maybe it's about the cage you live in. I also learned in my study that while there isn't one single gene or um, a set of genes that causes addiction, roughly 50% of a person's predisposition towards addiction is genetic. The other 50% is determined by your coping skills, or your level of resiliency towards the challenges of life. I met some friends last year who shifted my understanding of addiction. As I got to know them, I found out that um, my friend, one of my friends, was atti- got addicted to heroin when she was just nine years old and she was introduced to it by her 12-year-old brother. And now as a grown woman, for the past six years she's been on daily doses of medically administered um, methadone to kick her heroin habit. But methadone is also habit-forming. It screws with your, your body temperature, with, it can cause dizziness and slows your reactions. All things that I could visibly see my friend struggling with. And not to mention the fact that having to go get those daily doses each day in the Bronx made it really hard for her to hold down a regular job and afford a decent home. And while my friend had made some incredible strides and had an incredible faith that helped her to overcome a lot of challenges in her life, I can't help but wonder how different her life would have been if she had had a better environment growing up. What if my friend and her brother had lived in the fancy cage full of colorful balls and and fun toys to play with instead of the poverty and poor education and family troubles that she was born into? How many talents and gifts does the world miss out on when a person is born into injustice, where they don't have the choice of meeting their full potential, or developing enough resiliency to steer them away from their genetic predisposition? How is it fair that some go on to develop this disease, sometimes simply as a reaction to their poor environment, or because no one ever taught them self-worth, or they never quite figured out the right coping skills to steer clear of it? And then we, as a society, punish them by stigmatizing addiction and pushing them further into disconnection, sometimes even putting them into jail. It makes me angry to start thinking about all the different layers of things that go into a conversation about how and why a person gets addicted and how and why they can't get away from it. And I imagine that it makes God angry too. You know, it wasn't always popular opinion that addiction is a disease. Back in the early uh, 1900s, it was believed, mostly because of the temperance movement, that um, if you could not or would not sober up, that you, it was a reflection of your moral and ethical failure and you were, you were damned to hell. It was a reflection of your poor soul. And that was more of what popular belief was, and the prohibition went into effect for 13 years, banning the sale of of alcohol, and so after that, in 1935, Um, Scientists were starting to come around to the idea that maybe it wasn't just about the substance, maybe there was something more to it. This is where they were starting to study these experiments, right? But there were two men around that time in 1935, Bill Wilson and Robert Smith, who decided to do something about this. They started an organization called Alcoholics Anonymous, with the idea that suffering human beings have the right and obligation to try to relieve their suffering. Their 12-step recovery program that um, exists in this atmosphere of mutual support and spiritual transformation, it has helped to bring millions of people to recovery all around the world. It's also inspired so many other recovery, 12-step recovery programs like Narcotics Anonymous for drug addiction and even Al-Anon and Alateen for people who love people who struggle with addiction. I've learned that there are so many support groups that exist now to address the brokenness of our world through the Twelve Steps, all things from gambling to eating disorders to mental illness. And while AA and other such support groups meet in places like church basements and fellowship halls, it's interesting how many of them don't join the congregation then on a Sunday morning as well. AA has gotten a lot of flack over the years from Christians who believe that its principle of understanding God as a higher power is heretical because there's only one true God, and he can only be found through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I think the Christians who write off the 12 steps for this reason are missing the point. One of our favorite authors among the Forefront staff is a man named Richard Rohr, a Roman Catholic priest, and he's written this book that's in my top three favorite Christian books titled Breathing Underwater, where he is attempting to connect the gospel message with the 12 steps. He's hoping to show that there's a collective conscience, conscience, um, a divine spirit in both teachings. He breaks it down for all those people that think that it's us versus them, the, you know, put-together Sunday morning Christians upstairs and the people with problems in the basement during the week. Both teachings, Roar says, share a transformational message that to survive the tidal wave of compulsion and addictive behavior, we must all learn to breathe underwater and find God's love and compassion. I love that. So I want to take a moment today to just unpack the first three steps of AA, kind of take a a second to find the gospel message within these teachings as well. And so all 12 steps are on the screen behind me, but specifically, step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And so I would basically summarize these in the Christian context as confession, belief, and repentance. Step one, confession. I confess. I can't do life anymore on my own. I can't do it, God. My life has become unmanageable. I need you. Which basically describes for us our value of humility. We talk about humility a lot around here as a church. You know, our God seems to be so backwards. He has hidden holiness inside of humility. And for for us human beings who have these egos that tell us that we want to be in control and that we want to run the show, it's really hard for us to surrender to the idea and grasp the concept of humility. And it seems like for those of us who just coast through life from one success to the next, we really have a hard time with this idea. It's those who are willing to come up against failure maybe because they choose to or they're forced to. Those who have hit rock bottom that seem to really find that transformation into enlightenment and compassion. Until you're pushed to your own limits, will you ever give your power over to God? Until you learn that you have to give up control, you're not going to give control to God. It's part of who we are as human beings, unfortunately. Humility is not something that you can learn from just coming to church for an hour or two each Sunday. It's not something that you can even learn from reading your scriptures. Unless... And until we allow ourselves to come across an idea, a relationship, a situation, a conflict, or an event that we cannot manage, will we finally know the true manager of all things? You know that saying that God never gives you more than you can handle? I think that's kind of an awful mantra to live by. It's like telling you that you still have to be able to handle everything, that you have to be able to manage it all. When really, I think that God's sitting up there hoping that this will be the thing, you know, whatever you come up against, that this will be the thing that helps you realize that you can't manage any of it without Him. Which takes me to step two, belief. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step two, I think, reflects the necessary longing and delaying and backsliding that precedes just a full-blown leap of faith. Look at that phrase, it says, came to believe. There's so much wisdom in that. It's speaking into this journey that we all go on from darkness to light, through the peaks and valleys of building a relationship with Christ. That surrender of faith that doesn't happen overnight. It looks like a trust walk, it looks like a little bit of gradual letting go with each you know, person who influences you, each glimpse of Christ that you get in your life. Um, throughout this journey of understanding and, and letting go, Faith is not a blueprint, it's not a checklist. Anyone who's been a lifelong addict or who's worked through these recovery steps can tell you that you don't go through the 12 steps once and then bam, you're cured. It's a program that you have to keep working and keep uh, going back to and keep journeying through. And I think our faith walk is a very similar experience. This concept for me of being restored back to my sanity or finding my my equilibrium and my my foundation of belief, um, that really resonates with me because in my mid-twenties, for a few years there, there was a series of jobs, relationships, questions, uh, moves that left me in a place where I realized I couldn't manage life anymore. The coping skills that I had from growing up just weren't cutting it in the real world anymore. And so with the help of a few good friends and a good therapist, I started to ask some of the harder questions and really start to figure out, what is it that I believe? What is it that I want? And through that process, I myself also went through a spiritual transformation. And I was living in California at the time. I moved back here to New York with this new grounding, this new sense of belief of, of what I was looking for in my life. And so I met Jonathan Williams, the, uh, the senior pastor of Forefront, who was just about to start Forefront Brooklyn, our community. And we had a conversation about this very thing, this mystery of humility that we both had experienced and observed in the people who fail, who are willing to go through that journey. And so it's no wonder that our church has now become a place full of people who fail. We are walking through the doors, people who are walking through our doors in the midst of divorce. People who've been unemployed for a year and don't know what to do with themselves anymore. People who are seriously struggling with addiction or uh, mental or physical illness. People who think they're not worthy of love or people who um, are, are still wallowing in the shame of something that happened long ago. People who walked away from the church they grew up with thinking they didn't need God only to find out that they can't manage life anymore on their own. We all walk through as a hot mess of secrets and lies and mistakes and failures and we're seeking something to help us restore us back to sanity. And I do believe that the best way that we can support each other in these transformational journeys wherever we are when we walk through these doors is to love each other and to point each other towards the grace and compassion that is offered to each one of us through the love of Christ. Because without that, you'll never reach the point of surrender, which is step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So wherever you are on this journey, however you understand God in your life right now, you are invited into these questions with us, into these hard conversations with with us. Because letting go, unlearning and challenging yourself, it's not part of anyone's program for happiness. Yet all spiritual maturity in one sense or another is about letting go and relearning or unlearning what you thought you knew. You know, throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, Paul and the other apostles, even Jesus in the Gospels, they say things like, repent for the forgiveness of sins. You know, your kingdom come, my kingdom go. And, um, Lay down your life and pick up the cross. Like, all of these different kind of radical phrases, right? But I think what they're getting at when they say this language of repentance is exactly what Bill Wilson and the writers of AA meant when they said a radical surrendering of our will to another being whom we trust more than ourselves. It's this confession of genuine belief that we are unworthy and yet we are loved. And that forgiveness and mercy follow us when we step into the presence of Jesus. Allow yourselves to breathe into the waters of a loving God full of grace and compassion. That's what I think they're calling us to when they say repent. Learn God's ways and his values for your life instead. So now, here we are sitting in the book of Galatians, right? Paul's talking to us. He's talking to the early Christians, trying to teach them what it looks like to be the body of Christ here on earth. What is it that we can learn from this? You know, I read this passage and I think about how it could help inform us as a community to figure out how to deal with things as heavy as addiction. So here's the church, right? In the early days, they're still trying to understand this idea of radical grace, as we still are, trying to wrap our brains around this idea of unearned love that Jesus offers us, right? Because they were part of this, this religion under the Pharisees that said that salvation is tit for tat. That you got to do this and do that in order to be saved. When here's Paul saying, no, you know, what Christ is teaching us through all of this is, this is this trajectory of love and grace. Paul loved the word grace. Of the 155 times that it's used in the New Testament, Paul used it 100 of those times. And so here in chapter 6, he's specifically trying to teach us how to respond with grace to each other, how to respond with grace to ourselves, and what our responsibilities are in that as, as followers of Christ. So what does this passage have to say to us? Well, you know, I think Paul is envisioning in here um, a Christian in, in who's, you know, he's talking about this burden, right? He's, and I imagine it's something like, when a a runner overtakes a walker, that there's this burden that you can get yourself caught up in for whatever reason it might be, social, economic, spiritual, whatever that is, I could see how addiction could fit into this. Um, And he's talking about how we all have these burdens to carry, each one of us has a load to carry, some of us more than others. And so it's, it's the responsibility of all of us to respond to each other with grace and help to restore each other back to who God created us to be. Human beings, we were designed for relationships. We were created by God to need each other, to bond with each other. So when you have a life with trauma or neglect, something that prevents you from creating the healthy bonds that you need with human beings, it's understandable why you would turn to something else to bond. Disconnection is a huge driver of addiction. So I wonder how many of our addictions and our compulsions are fueled by a lack of something else a lack of love or worthiness or connection in our lives. I mean, how many of us have that genetic predisposition inside of us to, to be, you know, to turn towards addiction, but because we have, life is going well right now, or because we have, you know, healthy relationships, or a loving family that we grew up with, we are able to steer clear of that water bottle laced with, with drugs, whatever that might be in our particular cage. I have a few friends who over the past couple of years, there are these beautiful, talented people who've succumbed to mental illness or to addiction, this darkness that they didn't know they had inside of them. And it was because of a year of serious unemployment or miscarriage that all these things came to the surface, including these dark addictions. Um, And I look at them and I just think to myself, how many of us are just one bad year away from the same sort of struggles? It's hard sometimes to be the pastor of a church and stand in the lobby when I just want to turn to, to, to you guys and say, you just came through this burden and, and you're in the midst of it right now. Talk to each other. Just share your stories and help each other grow. So that is what I have to say this morning. That if you are struggling with a substance abuse or another unhealthy behavior that you can't stop on your own, tell someone about it. The opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's human connection. I want to take the stigma down a little bit today so that you feel safe to come and speak to someone, to find a healthy, safe person to bond with instead, and ask them to listen and to help. We are a community that is striving to show each other grace, to listen without judgment, and learn how to walk into these harder conversations together. If you don't have a healthy relationship, or you don't even know what that would look like, then I want to encourage you to join a small group, to ask someone for coffee, to just continue to live life with us and start to see what that might be. Or request a meeting with Alisa, who is our professional marriage and family therapist who works out of the forefront office. I would be happy to refer you to her. There are people here who want to love you and listen. And if you are a person who loves or cares about someone with an addiction and you're struggling to figure out how, um, how to do that, then consider this, you know, Paul tells us in verse 5 here that we each have our own load to bear. We're each responsible for our actions and our own growth. Every Christian is responsible to carry his or her own weight. And granted, some of us have heavier burdens than others, though they're all light in comparison to what Christ carried for us when he went to the cross. But any person who, who has been through recovery or any, anyone who works with addicts will tell you the same thing, that you cannot make an addict change. You cannot fix someone else. It is never your responsibility to fix another person. They have to reach the point where they are ready to change. The world is already too full of self-righteous Christians who are addicted to fixing the needs of others. It's so hard to figure out when love is being manipulated by codependency. When your desire to fix someone is being fueled by your own Scare your own fear of a lack of control or your own needs or lack of. I think that Paul, when he's talking about our personal responsibility to examine our own work in this passage, I think he's talking about true self-examination. You know, not just checking our spiritual pulse every once in a while, like, did I go to church this month? But actually turning your will and your thoughts and your actions over to God allowing yourself to be searched by the laws of Christ, by the teachings of Christ, in order to become spiritually mature, in order to become self-aware and humble, so that you might be ready to share the burdens of someone else when you are called. It's through the hard work of sorting through those things that we have inside of us that we start to learn to be um, Christians who can turn to each other and help gently restore each other a good friend of mine, who I would call a mature Christian, I've watched her go through a lot of um, hard self-examination over the years. She struggles with multiple family members who have had lifelong addictions, and she graciously shared with me that on the days when she is immersed in her community and um, feeling good about scripture and just the things that are going on in her, her life, she's able to respond to her family with grace and compassion. But When she's stressed out, or when she is struggling with conflicts at work, or figuring out how to pay the bills, she finds it much harder to be compassionate or gracious towards her family, and all those problems, even though they're multiple states away, come rushing at her. She just wants to disconnect or blame them for all of her problems. It's really hard for us to discern when we need to step back, because as Paul would say, we too might be tempted, we might fall into temptation, because we ourselves are not healthy enough to help someone else. So the same advice applies to every single one of us. Talk to someone. Seek out healthy relationships in your life where you can wrestle with the burdens of love and grace so that you can say to your addict, I love you and I am healthy enough to be here for you whenever you are ready to ask for my help. So finally, for us as a community, community, what does this mean? Well, you know, we're gonna to continue to ask these hard questions. We're going to keep learning. We're going to keep growing. We're, we're asking where our limits are. We're asking where God is, is calling us to walk into the brokenness of our city. We're asking the hard questions of what it looks like to restore and renew each other one person at a time. And I think the point of all this is that each one of us is called to test our own actions. Each one of us has a responsibility to carry our own, lord, our own loads so that we might have the strength to carry each other's burdens when we are called. And to gently restore our world, one life, one neighborhood, one city at a time. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you for this community. Thank you for people who are seeking you. Lord, grant us the serenity to, to humble ourselves before you, Lord. Restore us to sanity and give us the wisdom to discern when you are calling us to be your light in the world and when you are calling us to um, reflect on ourselves, to, to carry our loads and to share the burdens of others, Lord. I pray that we would be a community that continues to ask hard questions and that continues to embrace as, um, the harder things in life, Lord, um, as we seek you in everything that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.